Wall Street is raking in the money again, uh, and the uh, Dow went up over 10,000. How can you say no to these people? Hello, and welcome to NPR's Planet Monkey. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Today is Wednesday, October 21st. That was Senator Amy Klobuchar, Democrat from Minnesota. You heard at the top, she was talking about a proposal to extend emergency unemployment benefits. So on the podcast today, Dave, we are going to be talking about a special type of currency that's not traded on any exchanges or held in any banks, but that you can use to pay for goods and services all over the world in places where they don't even take dollars or yen or MasterCard or Visa. But first, the Planet Monkey Indicator. That indicator is 23. That is the number of states in which the unemployment rate rose last month. Uh, Rates did fall in 19 states, and they were reported holding steady in eight states. The Labor Department says Nevada, Rhode Island, and Florida posted their highest jobless rates on record in September. Nevada had an unemployment rate of 13.3%, Rhode Island 13%, and Florida 11%. Of all the states, Michigan reported the highest unemployment rate, 15.3%. Okay, but let's leave aside this grim news for a while and get onto the subject of today's podcast. Here at Planet Monkey, we talk a lot about how people make economic decisions. It turns out we've been ignoring the monkeys. (laughs) (laughs) So today we're going to talk about them. Actually, vervet monkeys. Right. Monkeys, much like humans, are constantly exchanging goods and services with each other. But unlike us, they don't negotiate the terms in long sit-down meetings or by signing binding contracts. Not that we know of. Not that we know of, right? So how do they measure the value of services? And can they adjust the price, whatever that might be, accordingly? So that's a question a group of scientists recently tried to answer. But uh, it turns out monkeys, since they don't use dollars, uh, they don't use bananas. I know you're thinking it. um, I was thinking it. (laughs) To pay for things. The scientists measured the closest currency equivalent they could find in the monkey world, which turns out to be grooming uh, it it has some aspects of money. Uh, to be honest, it's only, also the only thing that we can really measure easily. Uh, we can you can easily observe it, and you can uh, just measure it how m- many seconds of grooming uh, they give. That was Dr. Ronald Noe, a professor of primate ethology at the University of Strasbourg, and Dr. Noe was trying to answer a question about economic behavior among monkeys, and the question was this. Scientists knew that monkeys will provide goods for other services. They will participate in some sort of basic exchange. What they didn't know is, is there an exchange rate? Do they adjust prices? Do they behave economically? And so that's what they were trying to figure out. Dr. Noe proposed this experiment with the monkeys. And um, I recently spoke with him and asked him to explain how this experiment worked and what they discovered. What we did is we, we worked with two uh, groups of uh, vervet monkeys in South Africa in a park in South Africa, the Loskopdam Nature Reserve. Mm-hmm. And these groups were habituated to uh, that. That means that you, you can uh, work with them, you can uh, walk among them, you can be fairly close to them. And what we did is uh, we put up a, a container, a simple uh, structure with uh, pieces of apple in it. Mm-hmm. And we trained a low-ranking female to open this container. I see. Low-ranking females are normally uh, not groomed a lot. They groom themselves quite a bit. I see. But, and generally, the, the high-ranking monkeys within the group, they get groomed a lot. The low-ranking monkeys, they don't yes, get groomed right. very much. Uh, which makes you think already why. Uh-huh. And, and one reason is that the high-rankers can give other services that low-rankers can't give, such as 
support in a fight or a tolerance around the food site or something like that. I see. Okay. Yeah. Uh, tolerance so around then, the food uh, site. In other words, they let they can they they, they let they people near decide, food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they let yeah, people they who can, has access. They can to decide food. whether or not a low ranker is allowed to feed next to them or not. Right. If right. they don't like it, they hit them over the head. If they <laughs> like it, they uh, and they get uh, re- rewarded uh, for that by by grooming often. Right. So it's a, it's a protection racket in a certain way. Do you know what a protection racket? Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. I, know, I, know. I just have to think. Oh, I don't see it in that negative okay. terms usually. But, um, but I, didn't. I think monkeys are more friendly than that. But um, <laughs> they, uh, we see it in a slightly more positive way. They, they're, they're nice to each other and groom each other. But, of course, they also hit each other over the head once in a while. That, that's for sure. Okay. Vervets are not that aggressive. But I worked with baboons, and they were certainly... Uh, do a lot more of that. Okay. Um, okay, so, so you trained a low-ranking female monkey to open a box with apples in it, basically. Yeah. Open a Little container. pieces of apple, enough for everybody to have a, have a bit. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, then what, and then you turned her loose. What, what happened? Yeah, the, what, the first thing what happens is actually what, what people found before is that after that, she groomed a lot less and they, she was groomed a lot more. So we measured it in the, in the hour after opening uh, the box. Uh, at, at some point, she, she did it very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, after the, that, the high rankers had learned that they should stay away from the box for a moment, otherwise she wouldn't open it. But so um, she opened it, and the hour after it, uh, we, we saw that the grooming by her got a lot less, and grooming her uh, got a lot more. And that was quite a fairly spectacular uh, change, and fairly fast, and she went up in the range of what is, no, is normal for high-ranking uh, animals. Uh-huh. Um, but then the second step is much more important. What we then did is we got a second low-ranking female, trained her to open a second container uh, with apples in it, and then we saw that uh, the value of the first provider uh, dropped uh, more or less to the half of what she had before. Okay. So now we had a, a competition between two um, animals. Both of them could provide this uh, this good, so the, these apples. And so the value of the first one dropped down again. And uh, of the second one, who was very low at, at uh, the beginning of the experiment, she went up and they ended up both in the middle, so to speak. So, so basically what you saw is a natural world equivalent of, of what basic very basic microeconomic theory would predict. Yeah, very, very basic. What, what we try to, uh, to see is what, uh, the, the biological basis of economic behavior, so to speak. What can animals do? That, animals that cannot form binding contracts, animals that cannot talk about what they want to do or cannot offer verbally or anything, they nevertheless are quite accurate in, in adapting their, uh, their behavior to uh, what the market gives them. Um, and, and, and that's quite interesting because a, a few economists would say, well, th- this kind of thing can't happen if you don't have a binding contract or uh, if you don't, don't have an uh, external party uh, uh, controlling it, some institution that, that controls the whole thing, etc. But uh, it works pretty well. And, mm-hmm. and it, it sounds like what you're saying is that there's basically that, that at least among monkeys, and one can maybe assume that evolutionarily within humans as well, there's almost an instinct towards market behavior in a, in a certain way? Is that too yeah, far? Uh, I, I, I would like to avoid uh, the word instinct. I don't like that too much. Oh, okay. It's something like completely innate and, and so forth. But um, I think some basic uh, mechanisms uh, are likely to be the same. 
basic mechanisms that uh, make you like or dislike a partner. Uh, you are willing to give more if you like a partner better. If a partner gives you something, something like if your partner makes apples available to you, then you start to uh, have positive feelings towards this partner. And that has something to do with neurohormones uh, in the brain. Uh, we, there are a couple of mechanisms known, but they're very technical. Mm-hmm. Um, so in time, you will more like this uh, person or this individual, and then you, you uh, are inclined to give this individual a bit more. Uh, and I think that kind of thing, in, in certain circumstances, that will work in humans as well, but notably in relationships that are um, stable, that uh, among friends, among people that, that you interact fairly often with, the, ba- the bakery where you go to buy your bread, that kind of things. It won't work on the stock market or something where you, you play with anonymous uh, partners. Right. But it also strikes me that, that, that the second aspect of what you found, that when so, so you, one another way of looking at it is that the first monkey who was trained to open the container, they had sort of a, a monopoly yes. hold on that on the Apple distribution yeah, network. Yeah. <laughs> so that yeah. monkey mogul uh, can can charge a high price, a lot of a lot of strokes, and then as soon as there's a second entrant into the market, the 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 price of of that good or service is goes down. Yes, that's right. That's exactly it. Yeah. So you go from a monopoly to a duopoly, and that, that's that's all it's about it. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty amazing. Were you, were you, yeah, were you, when you it's, it's simple, but you still have to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> when when it actually worked out that way, when you saw that the number of strokes were going down, and that the other monkey was gaining in strokes, and it e- evened out at this equilibrium, was there um, was it exciting for you? Was it sort of was there jubilation? Uh, I had of secondary, secondary excitement. It was, uh, this, all this work is done by a um, um, PhD student and a couple of people that helped her. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, can, you have to, do it, to have two people to do that. It, it, it sounds all very simple, but of course it's, no, it it's very complicated simple, to yes. do it. <laughs> it sounds very complicated. <laughs> you have to do this in the midst of rhinos and other animals. You have to find the right place and you have to, to guess where the, the, the monkeys go before you set up your stuff. So half the time you set up your stuff in the wrong way. Um, and of course, then I got the, the message that things were working. I was, of course, quite happy. It was um, it was me who, um, who uh, proposed this this experiment? And of course, if you have some people working for years on it and spend a lot of money on it, then you're quite happy that it also actually works. Right. I hesitate to ask this question to a man of science, but do you find yourself forming an, an emotional attachment to any of the verbs? In particular, like for example, do you find yourself rooting for the low-ranking mm. female? Like, oh, oh, now she's going to get groomed more often. That's going to be good for her. Yeah, not me. I was <laughs> right. getting too old and had seen too many monkeys. Uh, I think, but yes, for the student, no doubt. When I did my PhD, I had that too. You, you, you get to know their personalities and you, you get to like them. And uh, I think that that is what uh, part of what what makes this work uh, so interesting but the other big part is that you are in nature and you see a lot of other animals a lot of other things happening around you Uh, that's why i prefer uh, working in in nature above working on captivity Mm -hmm. but but in in this case it was necessary to do it as well because what we measure is is small differences in in grooming and so uh, if you reduce your grooming you have to you do that because the grooming costs you something at the time that you groom you can't pay attention to a predator you can't eat you can't uh, search for food 
and, and whatever you want to do in life. Hey, Alex, do you yeah. want to hear about my, my experiment? <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, I was teaching in Southeast Asia, and at some point my wife and I went to Indonesia to see the orangutans. And you spend like a couple days hiking, and you're constantly looking for monkeys, looking for monkeys, looking for orangutans. And then eventually we got back, and we were able to take a shower, and I was standing there in front of the mirror, and I, and I was like, monkey! Because <laughs> it, it was me. But, but, but I really, like, my brain was just like, there's one. <laughs> and there's a weak, skinny, balding monkey. <laughs> right. So right, I he think, would never get any grooming if he, hadn't found, never, never <laughs> if he hadn't found somebody to marry him. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there may be some connection there. It's just a theory at this point. Right, right, right. Well, yeah, exactly. One of the things that I didn't really explore with him but that I found really interesting is just sort of like, it, it sort of, that it, it, it found this equilibrium place, the grooming behavior found an equilibrium roughly at half, you know, and that that it would work out that way without monkeys knowing numbers, probably. They don't know what half is. They probably don't know what, but, but, but that somehow it still found this mathematical equilibrium, even if monkeys don't themselves know math. Right. They somehow, they somehow had a sense that the supply had doubled and that, uh, right. And that, that it was there. And therefore worth it less. was yeah. worth half as much. Yeah. Yeah. Although you you you'd think there it depends what their demand curve is like if they will if they have an infinite appetite for apples then you know I don't know right maybe they just get full and they're like yeah yeah apples I know you got apples she's got apples too I don't care anymore well I think that probably does it for us today visit our blog npr.org/money to see a picture of vervet monkeys they are not quite as cute as Harriet the hedgehog but they're pretty darn close they're pretty cute, yeah. If you happen to be a vervet monkey, send us an email. We want to know what you think of this podcast. We're at planetmoney at npr.org. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to NPR's Planet Monkey. I'm Alex Bloomberg. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome. <laughs> <laughs> it might be literally impossible. No, we can do it. We can okay. do it. We can do it. All right. The first, the planet monkey indicator. <laughs> <laughs>